And now, here's your host for the 80th Annual Academy Awards, John Stewart. This is exciting. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. What an exciting night. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Sophia Simonello. And I'm Nick Workrout. And we're back with another Oscar Rewind. We polled you guys on Twitter and you decided that 2007 was the next year that we should cover. And we were really excited about that. This is a fantastic group of nominees. There were also a lot of things going on at the time Mm -hmm. that I think affected the ceremony and that were discussed during the ceremony and may have influenced which films got nominated. But I do really like this five. It is very strong. And we'll be going into each of them like we have with these episodes previously. And we'll talk about the poll that we did, ranking the nominees and making our own preferential ballots and seeing if our winners align with all of your winners too. The 80th Academy Awards took place on February 24th, 2008, less than two weeks after the end of the writer's strike. They were hosted by Jon Stewart. No Country for Old Men was the Best Picture winner, and our other nominees were Atonement, Juno, Michael Clayton, and There Will Be Blood. So before we get into the ceremony, how do you feel about this group of nominees for Best Picture? I think it's a strong five. And I actually think there's some of the best nominees that we've ever had. Not all five, but I think in going back and rewatching some of these, because I hadn't seen a few of them since maybe I first saw them, like around their release, which is kind of wild. And I'm not sure I have the same feelings about them anymore now that I'm 14 years older, too. I had that same experience. And for one of the movies that we'll get to... I had a complete 180 experience, Mm -hmm. which was really cool. Mm -hmm. It's like I just needed some time away from it. And what does this group of films mean to you? I love this group of films. I think that as a collection, it is one of the strongest best picture lineups in history. These films are very indicative of the time, right? It's the end of the Bush years. We're kind of seeing the light at the end of that tunnel. We don't, of course, know that at the end of the tunnel, right, it's the financial crash and everything that's coming. But, you know, it's also pre-prestige TV, pretty much. I mean, we had The Sopranos, but TV wasn't really a thing like it is now. We didn't have the whole comic book movie craze. Like, this was pre-Dark Knight, pre-MCU. Iron Man came out in 2008. So it was kind of the last year at the Oscars that we had a group of five that had relatively low performances at the box office. Juno, I think, being the big exception. But these films, quite a few of them end on extreme notes of disquiet and ambiguity. And that's something that I really love in films. And aside from that, I remember after No Country for Old Men won Best Picture, going to see it with my dad. And, you know, I was only like 14 at the time and just feeling really grown up that he was taking me to see the best picture winner and 
I loved it and I still love it. So getting into the ceremony a little bit and my big disclaimer here is that this was the year before I like really got into the Oscars Mm -hmm. and actually started watching and thinking about nominees and getting a little bit more into the nitty gritty. So it was fun to like actually watch the Oscars that are available on YouTube and Mm -hmm. to kind of relive them and see maybe what didn't age so well and like Jon Stewart's hosting job and his choice of jokes. The things that I remembered from like even back when I was a teenager watching them were two speeches, one Tilda Swinton's and two Marion Cotillard's. I think because, Mm -hmm. you know, at that age for me, my experience with Tilda Swinton was the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Like, she was the White Witch. So seeing her, I remember, in that black dress with the bright red hair, I just remember being like, this woman is so out there and cool. And I still, of course, feel this way about Tilda. But her making fun of George Clooney with the Batman suit was great. (laughs) And then, of course, I think I have to say, you know, I love Daniel Day-Lewis and we'll get into that performance when we talk about There Will Be Blood. But one thing that I love about his speech is that Helen Mirren gives him his Oscar and he kneels down and she like knights him with the Mm -hmm. Oscar. And he says, that's the closest I'll be to ever getting a knighthood. And he ended up getting a knighthood in 2014. So just a cool little fact there. But just like of the time, the weirdest thing to me was that, so Tom Hanks, he presents Best Documentary Feature, I believe, and they like cut to this group of soldiers in Baghdad, and they are the ones who are reading the nominees out and announcing the winner. And it's just such a relic of the Bush time. Yeah, and in some of Jon Stewart's initial comments, they, you know, he pokes fun at the war and they cut to actors in the crowd and it's like a little uncomfortable. They're uneasy, but having to like now jovially laugh to his jokes and now looking back and having seen the segment of Tom Hanks doing this whole thing, it was like, Mm -hmm. oh, this is very odd. Yeah, I think today too, watching them, another thing that was so weird was that, you know, Scott Rudin was one of the producers on No Country for Old Men and... We've known a lot about Scott Rudin through the grapevine, and it's been pretty public, but only recently have massive articles and pieces of journalism come out. I highly recommend the piece in Vulture, um, where they interview a lot of his former assistants, and just seeing him win Best Picture and to be reminded of you know, what a presence in the industry he was, but of his horrible, horrible behavior. It was almost like, you know, watching Shakespeare in Love win and seeing Harvey Weinstein. I had a very, very similar experience watching it, just knowing about his abusive behavior. All right, so let's start with our best picture winner, No Country for Old Men. What's the most you ever lost on a coin toss? Sorry? The most you ever lost on a coin toss. I don't know, I couldn't say. Call it. Call it, yes. For what? Just call it. The IMDb description here, violence and mayhem ensue after a hunter stumbles upon a drug deal gone wrong and more than $2 million in cash near the Rio Grande. It was directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen. It stars Tommy Lee Jones, Javier Bardem, Josh Brolin, and Woody Harrelson. It was nominated for eight Oscars and won four. It won Best Picture, Best Director, Best Supporting Actor for Javier Bardem, 
and Best Adapted Screenplay. Its other four nominations were in Cinematography, Film Editing, Sound Editing, and Sound Mixing. So going over the precursors briefly here, so at the Golden Globes, it just won Supporting Actor and Screenplay. At the BAFTAs, won Supporting Actor, Director, and Cinematography. And then at the SAG Awards, Javier Bardem also won Supporting Actor there, and it won SAG Ensemble. Yeah, I liked how he tried to act shocked when he won the Oscar. It was like, you've won everything else. (laughs) This is not a surprise. (laughs) No, it was like a very clear win. And up until that time, no one else had done the clean sweep in that category before. So he was the first one to pull it off, which is interesting. I think before we get into this movie specifically, where are you on the Coen brothers? And where does this movie like fall for you in comparison to their others. I do like the Coen brothers. I think I appreciate their noir dark comedy vibe. And a lot of their films have this mystery to them that I really appreciate. I don't always love their movies as diehard Coen fans do. The first Coen movie I think I ever saw was Burn After Reading, which I thought was hilarious. That's an interesting start, definitely, to their filmography. (laughs) Yeah, maybe not their best, according to fans, but I think it was fun. Brad Pitt is wacky, and Mm -hmm. I think from there, I ended up seeing a lot of their films. I really like A Serious Man, which, again, might not be most people's number ones. And then I think I would put No Country for Old Men below that at number two. Okay. How do you feel about them? I really like them a lot. I think that, like you said, the noir elements that they go into and the dark humor just really, I vibe with that like very naturally. I also just love the people that they cast in their films. Like even as background or supporting actors, those like Cohen faces, I really love. And I feel like they're so good at understanding their actors and spaces and characters and one thing that I love about their films is that I feel like they're very accessible filmmakers so I feel that you know if you want to do a deep analysis of their films you can and that's an avenue you can explore and you can find a ton of great material and really interesting things that they're doing but if you just want to watch a movie to watch a movie they have some great ones that you can do that for So I appreciate them for that. And I think like if I'm recommending a movie to someone who maybe isn't as into film as say we are, a Coen Brothers movie will be one of the first that I'll recommend. But I'm not sure I would recommend No Country for Old Men to people who haven't seen any of the Coens or to people who don't see as many films as we do. Or would you? Oh, I disagree. I love this one. I think that there are definitely parts of it that are challenging, particularly the third act. But I do think that it's really rewatchable and it's aged really well over the years. And it kind of got another life when it would play on cable. I mean, I could also just be biased because if I go home, there is a 40% chance that this movie will be on the TV (laughs) because my dad is watching it. That's a very real thing. But I think I would still recommend this to people who aren't like Cohen fans okay. or film people. I think it's fun and it's tense and it's a good thriller. So I feel like you can get a lot out of it, even if you don't maybe appreciate the noir elements. 
I do think it's less of a less of a crowd pleaser than say True Grit, but my go-to would be Fargo to recommend. So I think it depends, but No Country for Old Men is definitely in my top three Coen Brothers movies. Like it is mm-hmm. very high up there. It, I think it is one of their masterpieces. So yeah, I think. I guess in just elaborating, I think this is for a mm-hmm. very specific mood. And I think I would recommend Fargo. I would recommend The Big Lebowski. I think those are easier to consume. I mean, even The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which didn't get a ton of awards attention, but I think is also easy to watch. So they have a nice like range depending on what you're feeling for the night. Diving into this one, what do you like about it? What works for you? Maybe what doesn't? So this is one that I hadn't revisited since I had initially seen it and I forgot a lot of what happened and the intensity that they created from almost a scoreless film and just Mm -hmm. with like those cold edits and Javier Bardem's eerie performance my god as this heartless (laughs) murderous serial killer is riveting I loved those moments like when he's trying to hide the money in the motel I was like wow, you are just totally consumed. And I think in the development of the film, and like you mentioned before, the third act, and how the movie really changes, and then the very ending really Mm -hmm. threw me off. I definitely didn't remember it just being a monologue cut to black. There were so many loose ends, and I, I liked it. I just needed some time to like, do some research and think about it. And um, it kind of makes sense why this won both big awards of the night. And I think after Mm -hmm. we get through all the nominees, we'll talk about it more. But I think it's still, it's a very interesting choice. I love the third act. I'm trying to think of like how to not totally fangirl over it because they set it up as a classic Western. You have this voiceover with these like expansive vistas and you see the beautiful landscape. But as the film progresses, it pivots from being a neo-Western into being a noir film. You're spending less time outside. You're spending more time inside these gross motel rooms in cars in these darkly lit interiors. And what I love is that they have the ability to capture tension so beautifully. Oh my God, some of the scenes are just so tense. But what makes them so tense is that they understand their spaces so Mm -hmm. well. Like, you know, if Llewellyn Moss stands in a particular spot in the motel room, that Sugar will be able to see him. They're really good at orienting you to spaces, and that feels very noir. And I think with the end, what I love is that it really flips it because you have the villain walking off into the sunset. You have our, you know, hero who's kind of a morally ambiguous character die off screen by a third party, which... I love. And then the Tommy Lee Jones character, Belle, going into the dreams, he's the title. I think it's a meditation on chance and chaos and futility. And the way that it ends with just, and I woke up, cut to black, Mm -hmm. is so bleak and just such a realistic way to end it. And that's why I like it so much. I think it's just, it's very profound and it very much like leans into the fact that what we thought, we being the Bell character, and people of that age thought was the way, just is a myth. And we're all going to die. And I love movies that end like that. 
And I think their choice to have a pretty violent movie at times, but to also have all of the main characters who die, die off screen, really makes you think of things in a different way and to maybe see things in the movie that you wouldn't have otherwise really thought about. And I think that leads into Tommy Lee Jones's character, who at first I didn't imagine was going to be a huge role. But, you know, by the end, obviously he is. And he, probably more so than Llewellyn, are who we, the audience, are identifying with. I think that the Josh Brolin character, though, is like at first you kind of think of him as being your traditional Western hero, but they put all these little choices in that make you realize that, okay, he makes questionable decisions. Like, he kills a dog in the movie. That was my first sign where I was like, okay, <laughs> this guy is not the hero of the Western. But I do think, like, standout-wise, Javier Bardem is definitely the one who, like, it makes sense that he won the Oscar and that he swept mm-hmm. the season. I mean, I give the Coens and Cormac McCarthy, like, kudos for the development of that character, of course. But, I mean, he has such an effective, horrifying original weapon Mm -hmm. like that really terrified me for years after seeing it and still did when I watched it and I love that performance and I don't think anything was coming close to beating it I think it was the haircut that made him so terrifying (laughs) yeah (laughs) that's definitely part of it I thought to myself though when I was watching this this is such a cursed thought I was like what if Francis McDormand played this character (laughs) And she probably could. (laughs) So while this was tied for the most nominations of the night with There Will Be Blood, it took home four. Do you think it was snubbed anywhere? I think that most of the actors in this movie should have been nominated, especially Tommy Lee Jones. I was really surprised that he was nominated for In the Valley of Ella instead of this, Mm -hmm. because... I think that Tommy Lee Jones in his roles, he brings so much experience and so much weight to those roles. And especially to a character like Belle, it just would have made sense for him to be nominated there. I also would love to shout out Kelly McDonald, who plays Carla Jean Moss, Llewellyn's wife. She is Scottish in real life. And not that accent work is everything, but that accent is so good. And she just, you feel like she's like, they found her on the street and pulled her into this role. Her eyes are so expressive. And Mm -hmm. just even like the scene near the end when she's talking to Sugar and she won't do the coin toss, Mm -hmm. it's like, oh, and you just know what's going to happen. I think she definitely deserved a nomination too. She was very convincing, I think. Mm -hmm. Do you think anything was snubbed or do you think this is like the right amount of nominations and wins? I'm pretty happy with all of its nominations. Like for editing, say, I could have seen this winning over the board ultimatum, but I also understand those choices. I think even though it didn't win in some technical categories, like I think it could have, I'm happy that it was the big winner. I do think like sound editing and sound mixing, it maybe should have won one of those. Like every sound you pay attention to, especially in those really tense moments, like in the hotel, I turned my volume way up to hear like every little sound that I could, which is a really, really fun experience. Well, I mean, going back to our contenders and with Sound of Metal having one sound in editing, 
the Born Ultimatum took both of those sound categories and editing. So that's why. Cool. (laughs) And we ask this on our rewinds too, but how do you think today's Academy would receive this movie? I think they'd still absolutely love it. No question. Like you said, it does age really well. And I think it's messages are still so pertinent and I think maybe even more so for us because we can understand them a little bit more now and and it's just a really well-crafted movie do you agree yeah I do I think you know the Coens are so respected and loved in the industry and this movie's so watchable and just so well made too so I think they would still love it today and if you could give this movie one Oscar what would it be that's hard because there there really are so many I would want to give it, but I think I would give it to Javier Bardem, Best Supporting Actor. I think that when I think of this movie, still, I think of the coin toss scene and of him in that gas station. Mm-hmm. So it's a phenomenal performance. I would have to give him his Oscar. Very well deserved. What about you? How do you feel about category fraud here? Oh, you put me on the spot. Um, <laughs> just... I'm okay with it, only because, and we'll get to actor later, he did not have a chance, or would not have a chance in that <laughs> category, I don't think. I think I still see Josh Brolin's character as the lead for most of it, because I think Anton Sugar's character, yes, he has a lot of screen time, and he has a really strong presence in the film, He's operating Mm -hmm. more kind of as this devil or chaos agent who is there to prove that, you know, it doesn't matter if you're a good person or it doesn't matter, like, you could be in the wrong place at the wrong time and that's it. So I feel that his character, it's less of his story and more about his effect on the other characters. How do you feel about category fraud here? When I think about this movie, I absolutely only think of Javier Bardem and we discussed this before about Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> yeah. And looking at his time in the film, he was only in 23% of the movie, which is actually kind of surprising. His performance is just that good. I mean, it's, it that's really scary. is. And I think part of it is that we feel this impending doom or you feel his presence even when he's not mm-hmm. there. Just like even how he interacts with like the kids at the end. And you're just like, ugh, like these kids, you know, they care about money. Here's the devil, like, coming and affecting the next generation, too. It's just, it's so great. Add so much to it. But I would also give it to Javier, actually. I think he's, by far, for all of the reasons we've talked about, the one that deserves the Oscar here. And if you want to watch No Country for Old Men, it's on HBO Max. So getting into Atonement now... 13-year-old fledgling writer Bryony Tallis irrevocably changes the course of several lives when she accuses her older sister's lover of a crime he did not commit. It's directed by Joe Wright, stars Kira Knightley, James McAvoy, Sorsha Ronan, Benedict Cumberbatch. It was nominated for seven Oscars and won one for Best Original Score. Its other nominees were Best Picture, Best Supporting Actress for Sorsha, Adapted screenplay, cinematography, art direction, and costume design. And then for precursors, it won Best Picture Drama and Best Original Score at the Globes. It won Best Film and Best Production Design at the BAFTAs, where it had 14 total nominations and didn't have anything at SAG. So how do you feel about Atonement? I really loved this movie. 
So I didn't see it the year it came out, actually. I waited until after I read the book. And I love the novel by Ian McEwan. Mm -hmm. I love it. It's one of my favorite books. So when I first saw the movie, I was a little disappointed because it didn't live up to the book. But years later, on rewatch... This thing like really wrecked me. I thought it was so beautiful and so sad and I thought the performances were great, but technically I thought it was just exquisitely made and beautiful. How did you feel about it? I felt the same way. I was kind of blown away by how epic it was and how Mm -hmm. well it succeeded. I think every single nomination was deserving. You know, as I was watching, I was like, oh my God, the production design was incredible and I was like thank god it was Mm -hmm. nominated the score which I had on my iPod probably growing up and listened to Brian (laughs) studying and and I think it's so perfect for what's going on and how they use the same themes but use different instruments for different characters I think that's really cool so beautifully shot reminded me of Dunkirk on the Mm -hmm. that tracking shot yeah just amazing that tracking shot is so gorgeous and I don't love every tracking shot like there are some great ones but this one it captures and I love Dunkirk the Christopher Nolan movie but I think this one five minute shot captures everything that Dunkirk the film does you get that British patriotism you feel like the pain of the soldiers it's just beautiful I love it so much that was the scene where when I was watching it this time it clicked in that my reaction was different and that this was better than how I'd remembered it. Mm -hmm. And then when Robbie comes upon the choir and they start singing that beautiful song, I think, oh, there's just so much happening. And it's this really incredible portrait of the soldiers' lives. And I love how we get to see this, but then we also see different facets of war life. You know, we have obviously the mansion in the beginning and this like really beautiful set And the lives of these people that are somewhat removed from the rest of the world. But I also just really love the editing and how subtle it was, but how important it was to telling different perspectives and this idea of innocence and really the crime that Bryony commits. This was another movie where they created these really intense emotions from Mm -hmm. just great technical work. And that's why I really love movies like that. Yeah, I mean, this movie, Saoirse Ronan is so good as Briny that I texted you this. I was like, this movie makes me hate Saoirse Ronan (laughs) because this character is such a little demon child. Like, she's the villain of the movie. And it's not until the end, I think, that you can come around a little bit on it. But Mm -hmm. I just, like, imagine you have that moment with James McAvoy in this movie in a library and then this little demon child ruins your life. That's tragic. Yeah, just imagining the implications and obviously watching them happen is so, so devastating. Even having seen, you know, what Bryony saw kind of in the beginning, it's like we as adults can put two and two together, mm-hmm. but she was seeing things differently. And that is just, I loved how that came about. And the way that Joe Wright does that with the shifting POV and giving you that understanding, it just really works. And I think too, like later on, I like the time jumps and how we get, you know, when Bryony is a little bit older and she realizes what the Benedict Cumberbatch character has done and it's not Robbie Mm -hmm. and you get that flashback and it switches. I think that's really cool. This is another movie that I hadn't revisited since I had seen it initially 
mm-hmm. but the single image that I remember from the movie was Kira's green dress. Yeah. We got a listener question from Abina Reviews. Why do you think the two lead actors for Atonement were snubbed? I remember them being really strong and Atonement was a huge contender. So while I think all of the components of the film are great, I would probably put acting lower on my list of what I loved most about the movie. Not that it's bad, but you know there were so many other bigger performances that year. I think that's an easy reason why something that isn't as heavily acting focused didn't get nominated. Yeah, I can see that. I think James McAvoy should have been nominated. I think he's really good in this. And that's not just my bias of when I saw this movie of him being the blueprint for like the look of man I would like for quite some time. (laughs) My heart breaks. Like every time I look at him in this movie, it's just especially later on in the film. I think that he brings a lot to that performance and definitely should have been nominated. So our Best Actor nominees, we had Daniel Day-Lewis, George Clooney, both from Best Picture nominees. Mm -hmm. They weren't going anywhere. Johnny Depp for Sweeney Todd, like sounds like a really odd choice, but he won the Golden Globe for actor in a musical comedy. And sometimes that does translate to Oscars for a nomination just because it's in everyone's minds. Mm -hmm. And then Vigo also had been nominated. Tommy Lee Jones was in a Best Picture nominee. And even though the movie he was nominated for was not one, you can see the Academy still wanting to recognize him somewhere. The stat that you read earlier that I think is like the tell-all is that this movie received no SAG nominations. So Mm -hmm. big craft-heavy film, not a lot of support from actors. So I think that's why really for both of them, it didn't come through. Mm -hmm. Quickly going through the Best Actress nominees, Marion Cotillard won, and then Cate Blanchett was nominated for Elizabeth, The Golden Age, Julie Christie from Away From Her, Laura Linney from The Savages and Elliot Page from Juno. Yeah, I mean, I think like those names are like it makes sense why Kira Knightley didn't get in here. Mm-hmm. Julie Christie's a huge name. Like that just makes sense that she got nominated and she even won some precursors too. And how do you think today's Academy would receive this movie? I also think this one would be really well received. I think that there's always a space for a really strong British film to get in and this one does really make you feel something and because of all the technical components too it will be really easy to vote for I think what do you think yeah I agree I actually would think it would win more today maybe I think some of those Mm -hmm. technical categories but I think this is also one that ages pretty well so we talked a little bit about James McAvoy and Keira Knightley but do you think that there were any other snubs for Atonement I don't think so. I'm actually really happy with all of its nominations. What do you think? I would have nominated Vanessa Redgrave in Best Supporting Actress, actually, just for her final scene. It's beyond me why they decided to give Bryony the same haircut for her entire life. But I think that Vanessa Redgrave's performance is heartbreaking. And earlier, I called Bryony a devil child. And to be able to take me from thinking that a child is the equivalent to like Reagan from the exorcist to having full empathy for her. Mm -hmm. That's a really tough job for an actor to do. And Vanessa Redgrave did that. I think it would have been a deserving nomination alongside Saoirse, 
who is incredible in the part. What do you think about Joe Wright not getting nominated for Best Director? He was the only one of the five Best Picture nominees who didn't get a Best Director nomination. Yeah, I was kind of shocked there. The fact that it got recognized in so many places and Joe Wright was swapped out. I think this is his best work, and I really would have liked to have seen a nomination here for him. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's kind of odd that he didn't get nominated and Jason Reitman did. I guess that's what I would swap out because at the DGA, we had the Coen Brothers, PTA for There Will Be Blood, Tony Gilroy for Michael Clayton, Julian Schnabel for The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, and then we had Sean Penn for Into the Wild. So... Jason Reitman was also, he wasn't included at the DGA. And I think if I would have been doing predictions at the time, I would have definitely messed this category up and Mm -hmm. thought like maybe there's a spot for Joe Wright, especially with the BAFTA love. So I'm really surprised he didn't get in. I think he should have. Mm -hmm. And if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would you give it? There are quite a few, but I would actually give it best costume design. I think that the green dress, like you mentioned, that's what I remember from this movie. And I watched this YouTube video from Mina Lee. She was talking about the costume design in Atonement, and she brought up how a lot of the styles early on in the film, even though it's set in the 30s, looked more like 20s fashions, and that was because Jacqueline Duran, who won for Little Women for costume design, wanted to evoke an earlier period because that's what Briny might have remembered since it was from her point of view. And she had to think about like certain things like that of how the shifting POV would affect the costumes, which is really, really interesting, I think. Something I wouldn't have thought of. And I think I would give it production design. I kind of want to give it cinematography, but there are so many locations, and I think all of the props and the atmosphere of the spaces just fit so perfectly. I think that gives it an edge. And I think even speaking just of the tracking shot again, I think that was just such a masterpiece. And even accomplishing that shot, everything had to be placed in a specific spot so that the camera could go through the entire beach. And I think that's really impressive. And if you want to watch Atonement, you can rent it on Prime, iTunes, anywhere like that. So next up, we have Juno. Faced with an unplanned pregnancy, an offbeat young woman makes an unusual decision regarding the unborn child. It's kind of a weird description. It was directed by Jason Reitman and written by Diablo Cody. It stars Elliot Page, Michael Sarah, Jennifer Garner, Jason Bateman, J.K. Simmons, and Allison Janney. Great cast. It was nominated for four Oscars and won one Best Original Screenplay for Diablo Cody. The other three nominations are Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Actress for Elliot Page. Some precursor stats here. So at the Golden Globes, it didn't have any wins, but it did have three nominations. At the BAFTAs, it won Best Screenplay. And then at the SAG Awards, we had one nomination for Elliot Page and no wins. When did you first see this? And what was it like for you rewatching it now? I can remember seeing this when it came out. Mm-hmm. And At the time, I was in high school, just like Juno. So I think with the film being placed in that same space helped me to identify with, I think, the vibe they were going for with the screenplay. Watching it now is a very different experience. And I really (laughs) felt the screenplay was playing into some fad of the time. Like, it felt so, so hipster. She's like, hold on, I'm on my hamburger phone. Like, there are just so many little things 
so many phrases that just you wouldn't say. I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Things that you hear J.K. Simmons and Allison Janney saying, I didn't love it on rewatch. What did you think watching it now? I had the opposite experience, actually, which is funny. When I first saw this movie, I loathed it. <laughs> like, I cannot tell you how much I disliked it. And I think part of it was because when I saw this, I was in the throes of Catholic school education where abstinence-based sex ed was shoved down my throat every day. And I was sick of it. And I didn't want to hear any more about teen pregnancy at all. And... When this movie came out and everyone was raving about it, I just thought, like, ugh, like, I get it. I don't need this at all. I did like the soundtrack, I remember, a lot. And I remember thinking it was really cool how the seasons would change and it would be, like, animated. I remember liking that a lot. Yeah. And now when I rewatched it, I thought it was really cute and had great performances and... I really loved, in particular, Elliot's performance and Jennifer Garner. When I first saw that, I think that Jennifer Garner's character like felt more one note to me. But this time watching it, she felt like really real and like a very specific type of woman who would have to deal with the issues that she deals with being married to this awful Jason Bateman character who's so immature and just terrible. Yeah, I just had a lot of fun with it now. I felt like my years away from it really helped me. But I do agree with you that because the screenplay, I think, at the time was so popular and so quotable, like, I remember people being like, oh, dream big, like, just saying random quotes from Juno Mm -hmm. regularly, that now when I did hear certain things, I was like, okay, that, that is a little bit dated, and it doesn't really measure up in the same way now. Yeah, and there were just some other lines that are really cringe now there were a couple things that Elliot says like isn't that a little gay about Madison's name I was like that's not great the friend who likes the teachers she goes I love Woody Allen that was funny though when I heard that I was like oh my god that's what she would think the teacher would want to hear little things like that that I think went over my head more at the time Mm-hmm. I really liked now and just like how the Jason Bateman character kind of preys on Juno through music and movies and like bonding over things like that. I was like, oh, I know exactly, exactly who this guy is. And at the time, it didn't really mean anything to me. But yeah, definitely some cringy dialogue for sure. <laughs> but I will say that, so you liked Elliot and Jennifer the most? I think from so. From the cast? Just as far as performances go. I do love the Janny character a lot. My favorites are JK and Allison. Yeah. Who I think are just a hilarious couple. And like seeing Allison Janney at the end look at Jennifer Garner being a mom, I think it, there were just so many touching moments with them. Especially like the Janny character, just like when she hears that the baby will have nails, just like because she's a nail technician, just very funny things like that just very well written and I love how mean she is to that awful ultrasound technician so good Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then the J.K. Simmons character so my favorite quote this one he says look in my opinion the best thing you can do is find a person who loves you for exactly what you are good mood bad mood ugly pretty handsome what have you the right person is still going to think the sun shines out your ass that's the kind of person that's worth sticking with that's just like That's great, like, high school movie dialogue. Yeah. 
How do you think today's Academy would receive this movie? So I think that today's Academy, it really just depends on the year. So I think part of the reason why this got nominated for Best Picture was because it made a ton of money. Like, I think it made over $200 million, which is just insane for an indie movie to do that. And I think that it does fill that slot that we get at the Oscars sometimes of that indie teen dramedy. Like, if you think of, like, Lady Bird, for example, I think that Juno makes sense in that way. I do think that Lady Bird is way superior, especially, I think, watching it afterwards. Mm -hmm. Um, But... I think it depends. I think it would definitely have a big showing at the Indie Spirits. But I also think, like, if the screenplay were tuned up a little bit more for now and the dialogue was a bit more progressive, I think that it would definitely have a spot, especially in a field of 10. Mm -hmm. What about you? Yeah, I think it could be hit or miss. The Academy hasn't gone for any of Reitman's latest films. Nothing really since Up in the Air which I think was maybe his other big one. And I think it also depends because it deals with teenage pregnancy. And we know from this past year, like with Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, having zero nominations, the Academy doesn't love controversial topics. Mm -hmm. And I think here with teenage pregnancy, I think it brought awareness to the topic. And I think this was the perfect movie to do it because it was kind of lighthearted and had this like really wrapped up ending to it. And I think it was easy to consume for viewers, obviously with the box office numbers you mentioned. But I think if like this movie came out today, I don't think it would do as well. Like you said, it would have to be revamped and maybe with some kind of a different tone to it. I mean, I think part of it too, right? Is like Juno actually has the baby as opposed to never really sometimes always where she like gets the abortion. So I think Mm -hmm. that it is like a more palatable version of that story, which makes sense. Mm -hmm. But today, I think they'd, like you said, would want it more hard hitting, at least like writers maybe and directors. And that would mean that the Academy would be like, no, thank you. Indie spirits, away you go. Do you think that there were any snubs for this movie? Or do you think the four Oscars, one win is good? I think four is honestly more than enough um (laughs) i don't i don't see any snubs here i think four is good what do you think no no michael (laughs) sarah i mean if you want to talk about giving janny her oscar for this instead of itania you want to do that (laughs) yes actually yeah let's let's do it (laughs) that's being disrespectful to our mother though tilda swinton yeah i think this is a good amount of oscars for it i Maybe think Allison Janney or Jennifer Garner could have been recognized, but I'm truly loading up that supporting actress category during this pod. Like thinking about how I want Kelly McDonald and Vanessa Redgrave. Like it's just, I don't have room for them, but in a fictional world, I would like them to be recognized here too. So we had another listener submitted question by Kellen Abner, and he asked for our thoughts on the Marion Cotillard win. Because he said he's partial to Elliot Page winning. So why do you think that Marion was the winner here? And we also mentioned that Julie Christie had won at SAG. So do you think Elliot had a chance here or not? I mean, I would have loved for Elliot to have had a chance here. I agree. I think that the way he plays with the humor in the film just works really well. He understands the tone exactly the right way. And I can't see any other person playing Juno 
-hmm. And I also like want to acknowledge that for Elliot, this was probably a really, really hard part to take on and something that we didn't think of at the time because we didn't know, but to be playing a pregnant teen was probably very, very challenging. So, Mm -hmm. and during the ceremony, John Stewart, referenced how dark a lot of these nominees were and he was like thank god for teenage pregnancy and they cut to elliot and he also looked so dear in the headlights and it was like cringe joke so why do you think that marion ended up winning maybe instead of julie christie or elliot i think you know apart from marion doing this amazing transformation i think we come back to a lot the fact that the singer biopic role gets wins And it's probably not as simple as that, but I think Edith Piaf is such a well-known singer as well. So I think Mm -hmm. that helped her along. So in a year where I think it was very much between Marion and Julie Christie, Marion won the BAFTA and then the Golden Globe musical comedy category. And then Julie won the Golden Globe drama and SAG. So it's a little up in the air, but kind of between those two, I think it's easy to default to that real life famous person doing a lip sync for your life, basically, is what she's doing in the movie. And I do think it's a good performance, but it is one of those like very standard Oscar bait types of roles. So it makes sense Mm -hmm. why she won. I do love Julie Christie, though. So and then if you could give Juno one Oscar, what would it be? Anything? (laughs) We have to think we're in February 2008 right now. I mean, I guess if we're doing that and I'm 16, (laughs) I can give it to original screenplay. (laughs) I think if this were today, though, I would give it to Elliot. I'm torn. I definitely think like Elliot makes sense. I think I still would do best original screenplay just to recognize Diablo Cody. And I know that some of it hasn't aged that well, but it was iconic at the time and Mm -hmm. very quotable. And I think for it to be this indie film that just was a really big box office success, it made sense for it to win. I would have voted for Michael Clayton here, but (laughs) we'll just say Juno. I mean, give Diablo Cody an Oscar for Jennifer's body. And if you want to watch Juno, you can watch it on Stars or stream it on Amazon or YouTube, anything like that. Okay, so next up is Michael Clayton. A law firm brings in its fixer to remedy the situation after a lawyer has a breakdown while representing a chemical company that he knows is guilty in a multi-billion dollar class action suit. This was Tony Gilroy's directorial debut, and it stars George Clooney, Tilda Swinton, Tom Wilkinson, and Sidney Pollack. It was nominated for seven Oscars and won one for Best Supporting Actress for Tilda Swinton. Its other nominations were for Picture, Director, Actor for George Clooney, Supporting Actor for Tom Wilkinson, Original Screenplay, and Original Score. And for Precursors at the Golden Globes, it had four nominations but no wins. At SAG, it had three nominations and no wins. And at the BAFTAs, it had five nominations and Tilda won for Supporting Actress. So before we talk more about Michael Clayton, we should definitely talk more about the 2007 Best Supporting Actress race because this was one that was constantly referenced this year when talking about the Supporting Actress race and Best Actress when it was very clear that we had no clear consensus. The precursors were all over the place. In 2008... Kate Blanchett got the Golden Globe for I'm Not There. Amy Ryan won Critics' Choice for Gone Baby Gone. 
Ruby D won SAG Award for American Gangster, and Tilda Swinton won the BAFTA, like you mentioned. What's really interesting, I think, comparing it to 2020, 2021, is that this is the exact same thing that happened with Frances McDormand. She Mm -hmm. ended up winning the Oscar after only winning a BAFTA, and she was in a Best Picture nominee, which helped push her over the line. So I think it's really interesting to consider the parallels between the Tilda path and the Frances McDormand path. And it's definitely maybe something to keep in mind as we move forward. If we ever have a BAFTA winner who is in a Best Picture nominee, maybe don't count them out and they could end up Mm -hmm. taking the Oscar. It's funny that Sorsha is the Vanessa Kirby in this situation. Like, happy to be nominated (laughs) the fifth person who didn't win any precursor. (laughs) She's similar to Carrie Mulligan, too. I mean, Carrie Mulligan had Critics' Choice, but being in a Best Picture nominee and then just... I'm wondering if people... Like, if film Twitter would have existed in 2007, 2008, if people would have been like... Sersha's definitely going to win. She had my favorite performance of the year, despite like all evidence saying otherwise. (laughs) So I think I'm more of a fan of Michael Clayton than you are. But what were your reactions watching this? Was this your first time or did you watch it back then? I had seen it a long time ago, but I think I was still just as confused watching it today. (laughs) And I think it's solely the material just like goes over my head like reading the description and hearing lawyer class action suit chemical company (laughs) yeah i also haven't seen dark waters i really liked dark waters i do want to watch that but i think the script is really smart i think the performances are great love george love tilda and tom really i mean it's so fast-paced the entire time Mm-hmm. that you're in it and I think you're so consumed I was like wait what's happening but I didn't dislike the movie how do you feel about Michael Clayton I love Michael Clayton <laughs> it is the writer's movie of the group the script is excellent mm-hmm. and I really love the ambiguity and the clear admiration that Tony Gilroy has for Alan J. Pakula and Sidney Lumet and those guys of the 70s political thrillers and it's the type of movie that we just don't get anymore. Yes, like they don't make money. I think though today, like this would go straight on to like HBO Max or Netflix and would be kind of lost to the void. And the fact that this was like in theaters and nominated for Best Picture and a slew of other Oscars is really incredible to me. I do think the Clooney performance is particularly fascinating to me. It's my favorite like later Clooney performance. And I think that's because... When I see him, I expect certain things. And just because he is this just handsome, suave man. And in this movie, he's kind of down on his luck. I love the Tom Wilkinson performance when he's just carrying all those baguettes. That's like the scene that I always remember that. And I love the Tilda Swinton performance when she's it's near the beginning when she's practicing her speech and you get the editing mm-hmm. of her practicing and then her delivering it. I really love that. I think they're all just, and Sydney Pollock too, they're all great actors who are just acting all the way up to the ledge and not falling off. And that's a really hard thing to do. It is a dad movie though. And I like dad movies. And another question we had submitted from that classic movie guy How did Michael Clayton make such a stunning award season resurgence at the Oscars? 
because it's a great movie. No, in all seriousness. I mean, this is just the type of movie that the old guard of the Academy goes for. It's very much a throwback, but incredibly modern. I think that if you need something to capture, like being complicit in systems and the ambiguity of the aughts, like coming out of the Bush presidency, like it just makes sense. And having those Lumet-like characteristics and Clooney, and you have Sidney Pollock producing, like it just makes sense that it ended up getting a lot of support. It did have precursor nominations, like especially at the big guilds. So I think it, it makes sense that it kind of came back as that good old like classic movie that Academy voters go for. It also had a prime release date, October 5th. It's a really good weekend to release a movie for Oscar contention. And it would make sense to kind of have that early fall slot and probably peaked at the right time. How do you think today's Academy would receive this movie? I think they would love it, honestly. I feel like it would play really well to that same type of crowd. And it plays really well with the Trump presidency, too. I noticed very similar themes popping up that definitely apply to the Bush years, but also apply to the Trump years. You know, the idea of corruption and no matter what you do, there's no fighting the system and the people who are in it. So I think it would play pretty well. What do you think? Seven kind of feels like a lot for this kind of a movie now, but I think it would also, like Juno, depend on the year. Like with director, say, if it was a really strong five, Maybe they wouldn't have gotten director. But I think overall with the group, I think there would be some love for it. And do you think that there were any snubs as far as nominations go? I don't think so. Would you have nominated something else? I don't think so, honestly. I feel like it's good and it got a lot of attention in really big categories. Mm -hmm. I don't think I would say that there are any snubs. I think these make sense. And then if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? This is so contradictory because I just gave Juno the same Oscar, but we're making up our own rules. I would give this best original screenplay. I think the writing is just superb. I'm Shiva, the god of death. The script's just brilliant. What would you pick? Yeah, I will keep my Oscar with Elliot and I'll give it screenplay here so that they don't coincide. I think I might switch and do best actress for Elliot so that... (laughs) They don't match. Yeah, I'll do that. That's better. I'm retracting my earlier answer. And if you want to watch Michael Clayton, you can watch it for free on Tubi TV or on HBO Max. All right. Are you ready to talk about the best movie of the 21st century so far? (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Let's do it. There Will Be Blood. The description here. A story of family, religion, hatred, oil, and madness focusing on a turn-of-the-century prospector in the early days of the business. It was directed and written by Paul Thomas Anderson. It stars Daniel Day-Lewis, Paul Dano, Kieran Hines, and Dylan Frazier. It was nominated for eight Oscars and won two. Daniel Day-Lewis won Best Actor, and Robert Elswit won Best Cinematography. The other six nominations were Best Picture, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Film Editing, art direction, and sound editing. As far as precursors go, the only wins this movie really had at the big ones like Golden Globes, BAFTA, and SAG, Daniel Day-Lewis did a sweep, which we love to see, especially Mm -hmm. for this performance. (laughs) What do you think of There Will Be Blood? It's a masterpiece. This one also ages so well, and I am still really shocked why it didn't 
get more wins at the Oscars. I think it's just so telling. There are great performances. The script is amazing. The cinematography. Every single thing is made so well, and that speaks to PTA. What are your thoughts on There Will Be Blood? I think before we go to Into There Will Be Blood, I will say that we are doing a Paul Thomas Anderson retrospective there will be multiple episodes when his new movie comes out. So we'll be diving like very deep into there will be blood then. Mm -hmm. But I think just simply I'm obsessed with this movie. I think it's the closest thing that we have to Kubrick since Kubrick passed away. It is bold and dark and evil and beautiful and hilarious all at the same time. And Daniel day Lewis's performance is monstrous and it is my favorite best actor win ever. I think this movie is, it's a masterpiece, like you said, and I'm so glad that we have it. And I think I know why it didn't win more Oscars, but it doesn't mean that I'm not sad that it didn't. It, to me, is one of these great epics that we don't get all the time. Like, Lawrence of Arabia comes to mind that, you know, it'll last forever. Yeah, and... To me, the movies that I thought of when I watched this, 2001 A Space Odyssey was the first one, which was like where the Kubrick comparison first came from. You know, the way that it starts with this like dawn of man type of feeling Mm -hmm. and with him literally like emerging from the earth. It's amazing. Like the way that he shoots it and it doesn't have any dialogue. Just that Johnny Greenwood score, which is, I mean... That's the one I listen to. Like, if you listen to Atonement, I listen to There Will Be Blood, this score all the time. I also thought a lot of Citizen Kane, actually. The story of this, like, mogul, this American man, and the struggles that he's facing. This, like, rich and powerful and angry man and capitalism and all of these things that we think of when we think of Mm -hmm. American cinema and American life. And then another just quick Kubrick thing, because I loved it, but the signature. So at the beginning, when we get the Daniel Plainview Mm -hmm. signature with the silver, and then near the end, when we get the Daniel Plainview signature, it reminded me so much of Barry Lyndon. Mm -hmm. So I loved that too. And I think that it definitely has influences. You can look at any of these great epic films and say that it's similar and it draws from them. Treasure of the Sierra Madre being another, but... It is so original and its own at the same time. And it feels like if someone asks me, like, what is an American film? I'll be like, here, there will be blood. That's mm-hmm. the one. I mean, it is like the old Westerns modernized. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, what's what's more all-American than God and money? Like, that's what this is, right? It's like religion and capitalism and how intertwined. And oil and, yeah. Oil and blood. <laughs> And milkshakes. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the Daniel Day-Lewis performance just a little bit. I've said it's my favorite. What do you think of it? I like his win here more than Lincoln. It's less showy. I think he's incredible. It's a subtle transformation, but I like to see how he devolves. And I think he has such a commanding presence on the screen. When you break down all of the relationships, like with his son and then once the son grows up so I I think there's so much to talk about there Mm -hmm. Um, but also with Paul the reverend and how they go back and forth Mm -hmm. trying to one-up each other basically and obviously the finale and he's just so fascinating to watch in every scene because I feel like he is that person in that character like he is this oil businessman and that's what he's done all his life (laughs) 
It is like crazy to think like this person just like wanders around New York City and Carhartt sometimes like that he's just like a real <laughs> human when you're watching this performance because he's so evil but so captivating and he also just is like a very beautiful man and like easy to watch in movies but in this movie in particular his line readings are so good like there are certain ones where I'm just like how did you know to do it this way especially at the end Mm -hmm. the famous I drink your milkshake and the I am the third revelation that whole entire scene is amazing and maybe the best ending to any movie I've ever seen I love it so how do you think today's academy would receive the movie I hope they would receive it in the correct way, but I feel like it would perform in the same way that it did then, sadly. I think that they respect Paul Thomas Anderson and certain movies like this one and like Phantom Thread are more Academy friendly, but I still feel Mm -hmm. like his sense of humor is just too weird for them. And that's what I love about his movies so much, but I think that if you can't find that window in, then it's harder to access this as opposed to other films that, you know, get released that are more populist. And this film's also a bummer. Like, I love it deeply, but when you leave the movie, when it ends, it's just that I'm finished. It's like, whoa, I just got whacked over the head here and need a minute. And sometimes that's not what people want when they are voting at the Oscars. So I think it would perform in the same way. What do you think? I would love to see this movie do so much better. I would want more than two wins. And I think it could do it. I you know, I don't know if people thought this was like hard to watch. I don't know if people thought it was slow. Yeah, I don't really understand why the Academy doesn't like PTA. They they do, but they have You're an preaching award. Preaching to him. the choir here, I mean <laughs> like the craft that's there is just superior. It does make me wonder, I think now that we're talking more about like could this win Best Picture? I think it absolutely could. It just has to be a weaker Best Picture lineup than No Country for Old Men, which is also dark, but easier, I think, to grasp than this one. So from a nomination standpoint, do you think this film was snubbed? I do think it was snubbed. Um, I think in a couple places, actually. So number one, the music branch at the Academy needs to get with it and not be so strict on these rules because the Johnny Greenwood score is the best it should have won in this category but was ineligible so it wasn't even nominated Hmm. he used pre-existing material so like at the very end when ddl is like i'm finished we hear brahms i mean i don't think an oscar nomination is worth like sacrificing your vision in that way right and Mm -hmm. just putting another song in but i do wish that that would have been recognized i also think it's kind of sad that paul dano didn't get nominated I think that the Academy probably was stuck on him being the kid from Little Miss Sunshine the year before and couldn't make that leap to seeing him in this. But, I mean, he plays two parts. We'll definitely talk more about that and, like, all the rumors around that when we do the PTA episodes. Yeah, I would just do Paul Dano. I think the technical categories they did get nominations in are great. And then getting into the final question, if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? I mean, probably the same for both of us. It has to be best actor for Daniel Day-Lewis. Oh. Yeah. I would actually give this movie multiple Oscars. I think that the editing is incredible and very underrated. Screenplay, obviously, Mm -hmm. PTA. But this is, it's Daniel Day-Lewis's movie. Like, yes, PTA was the vision behind it. And I will talk more about that, I think, 
at the end of the episode, but I would definitely give Daniel Day-Lewis best actor. I think it's, we talked about the performance. It's my favorite ever. What would you pick? Yeah, if we can't do picture, I would give it director for PTA. Mm -hmm. I guess more in where I feel like it was snubbed because obviously Daniel Day-Lewis deserves the Oscar too. But I think as a feat of work, this is my favorite of the bunch. I'm very excited for his next film. I love him a lot, but I do think to imagine him topping There Will Be Blood, it just seems impossible mm-hmm. because it's it really is just, it's it's that magnificent, truly. So that's a good pick. I would obviously be down for that. And if you want to watch There Will Be Blood, greatest movie of the 21st century, you can watch it now on Netflix. Okay, so getting into some listener questions now. I know we've listed a few already, but we have quite a few more. So we have two questions from Owen Daly. The first question is, are these five films your favorites of each of the nominated films directors' careers? Some of them are. And I want to put the emphasis on favorite here, not best, because I think that's a different conversation. So for favorites, my favorite Coen Brothers movie, it's really a tie between Inside Lewin Davis and Fargo. PTA, it's Phantom Thread for me. Reitman, it's Juno. Right. It's Pride and Prejudice. And Gilroy, it's Michael Clayton. Wow, we only have one that's the same. So for Cohen, mine would be A Serious Man. PTA is There Will Be Blood. Jason Reitman, I would say Up in the Air. For Joe Wright, I would say Atonement. And Gilroy, I would also have Michael Clayton. And then his second question was, if the lineup was expanded to 10, what five films do you think would have joined the lineup? So... This is what I think would happen, not necessarily what I want to happen. Again, caveat Mm -hmm. here. I think we'd add The Diving Bell and The Butterfly because we had Mm -hmm. director. Like, that's a big sign, I think. And then screenplay, cinematography, and editing. I would add The Bourne Ultimatum. That has the Ford v. Ferrari path to me with the sound editing and mixing and then the film editing nomination. I would also add La Vion Rose with the actress win. And then we have Makeup and Costume. I would add Ratatouille, which is like one of my favorite movies ever, honestly, and definitely of the year, but it got a ton of nominations, animated feature, screenplay, score, sound editing, and sound mixing, which is great. And then I would also add Into the Wilds, which was snubbed in quite a few places, but it does feel like something that could have benefited from the field of 10. Yeah, I think definitely The Diving Bell and the Butterfly and... Into the Wild would be two easy ones to add in. Mm -hmm. I would also love to see Zodiac, which was completely snubbed this year. And then I think I would also add in American Gangster Mm -hmm. and Sweeney Todd. I think they just, they all seem like Oscar bait to me. I almost swapped out Lavion Rose for American Gangster because Lavion Rose's nominations reminded me a lot of Ma Rainey's Black Bottom which didn't get a Best Picture nomination. Hmm. So mm-hmm. American Gangster does make sense. And Sweeney Todd, too, which I totally forgot was like a moment and that Johnny Depp was yeah. nominated. Which I do like. I really like Sweeney Todd. I have never seen it. Wow. I don't know why. I just haven't. So I'll, I'll add it to my list to watch. I know it's a blind spot for me. So our next question comes from Restless Mao. And the question is, which best picture nomination would you swipe out for one of your choices? This was pretty easy for me. I would swap Zodiac for Juno. I would do the exact same thing. 
I like that Juno got nominated, I guess, just by Zodiac. I mean, it's my favorite David Fincher movie, and the fact that it didn't get any recognition is wild. Next question, submitted by Steven. If there was a best film of the decade award, do you think No Country for Old Men would be the top film, or where would you place it? So I think we can think about this as best best picture winners of the decade or best films of the decade. For me, There Will Be Blood would win the best film of the decade award. We called it the best film of the century, so that crosses that off. If we're thinking of best picture winners, though... I think this is the best best picture winner of the decade for sure at least for me I mean this is it is one of my favorite ones of all time probably top 20 top 15 or 20 so I would definitely say it's my favorite here what about you I wouldn't say it's my favorite of the decade it would be probably top three how much of this is because it beat there will be blood because this was something I had to get over and it was really hard but once I did get over it I felt a little better I think that is part of it. Yeah. So our next question, Matthew said, I noticed the SAG ensemble lineup that year only had No Country for Old Men from the Best Picture nominees. My question is, would you have nominated any of the other Best Picture nominees for the category? If so, which ones? I am really surprised that Juno wasn't a part of that lineup because I Mm -hmm. think there are so many well-known actors Mm -hmm. and they all did a great job. So I think that to me is like an easy shoe-in for a cast ensemble nom. Me too. I would also pick Juno. And I think it's odd also because you have people coming from TV. Like Jennifer Garner was an alias. Allison Janney was in The West Wing. Like these were pretty popular actors. And the SAG Awards love populism. So it just would make sense for it to get nominated. I'm not really sure why it wasn't. And even the fact that like Hairspray was nominated, but Michael Clayton wasn't. I mean, Hairspray, that's popular. But I think also Hairspray mm-hmm. is a true ensemble film, whereas like something like Michael Clayton, it's most of the actors revolving around George Clooney. So I think if we think about it that way, maybe it makes more sense. Next question came from Cameron Sheets. He asked if this was the best best picture lineup of all time. Do you think it was? I think it's up there. Like it, It's really close. I would still go with 1975. So the year with One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Nashville, Barry Lyndon, Jaws, and Dog Day Afternoon. I think that that lineup as a whole is better and just has more iconic films in it. But also, like, it could be just the years that we have removed from it compared to now. Mm -hmm. But I do like 2007 a lot. There isn't a film in this group that I dislike. They're all strong choices, and I think for what this says about the time, I'm very happy with this collection. So our next question comes from Gabe. Why do you think Into the Wild got shafted so badly at the Oscars despite a strong showing at the guilds? I mean, it it kind of reminds me of, like, 127 Hours. It does not make any sense, quite frankly. Like, I don't really have the answers here because Sean Penn got a DGA nomination. It got a WGA nomination. It had a bunch of support at SAG also, so actors really liked it. But I think the telltale sign maybe is that it got nothing at BAFTA. And that body does cross over a lot with the Academy and can be a predictor. I also do wonder if some of it is the fact that an actor turned director is making the movie. And I know that like previously, like we had Kevin Costner and Robert Redford and it turned out really well for them. But as we move more into the modern era, like the aughts and the 2010s, it's less popular, I think, to recognize actor-turned-directors. 
Another question by Robert McFarlane. Do you think the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford would have done better if it had come out a year earlier or later? I think so. I think we just had a ton of Westerns this year, or like Western themes. Like even besides There Will Be Blood and No Country for Old Men, we had like 310 to Yuma and this one. So it is kind of a lot. Mm-hmm. I also think this movie needs a better title. Not that I'm an expert on that by any means, but... I just can't imagine being like, hey, do you want to go see the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford <laughs> later? <laughs> and I mean, the thing to mention about this one, though, is the Deacon's cinematography is really, really beautiful. Yeah, cinematography is obviously the biggest push for the film. It feels like a slog at times because it is two hours, 40 minutes. And maybe that's also why you had No Country for Old Men, which was two hours, but was much more palatable. It's time for the preferential ballot and our discussion on whether or not the Academy got it right, which I'm sure by now, if you're still listening, you know how we feel about this. In 2007-2008, the Academy just used a straight-up popular vote for Best Picture. We didn't have the preferential ballot until 2009. So we're just ranking them for fun, and we ask listeners to do the same. So we'll share, I think, popular vote and preferential ballot and see if we all agree. And thank you to everybody who responded with their preferential rankings. That was was really cool. And actually having to understand how the preferential ballots work and tally them and go through them. It made me think of how it maybe has affected the best picture race since it became a thing because it is really dependent on only a few number of ballots. Okay, so you start with your number five and we'll just count down on our ballots. So my five would be Juno. My five is also Juno. My four is Michael Clayton. My four is Atonement. My three is No Country for Old Men. (laughs) Okay. My three is Michael Clayton. My two would be Atonement. My two would be No Country for Old Men. And my number one is There Will Be Blood. My number one is also There Will Be Blood. So the popular vote went to There Will Be Blood, which is exciting. (laughs) And the preferential ballot actually came down to the final ballot, which was crazy because it was so close between there will be blood and no country for old men but the winner there was also there will be blood congratulations to oscar wilde best picture winner (laughs) there will be blood (laughs) let's talk about how we feel did the academy get it right what would we have changed you can start to me they did not get it right i think this would have been an incredible year to split picture and director. And I would have given it, I don't know, I I feel like I could see it either way. So I think if I did the split, which I'm actually, I think that it would be a good year to split, but I wouldn't have done it. I would have just done both PTA and There Will Be Blood as picture and director. I think that it would have made sense to give the Coen's screenplay. They're suited so well for adapting Cormac McCarthy work and... The changes that they make to the book are really ingenious, actually, and it's a really strong adaptation. So I think I would have liked to have seen There Will Be Blood as Picture, Paul Thomas Anderson for director, and the Coen brothers for screenplay. It's like my That's like my dream scenario. But 
I think that for people voting and just watching these movies, ending with Daniel Day-Lewis just saying I'm finished after committing a murder is a completely different way to end a movie. It's one that I like better, but I get that, you know, having Tommy Lee Jones talking about his dreams, that's, I mean, that makes sense, right? For like an end Mm -hmm. of an Oscar movie. Okay, we did it. We talked about 2007, which is an incredible year at the Oscars. And thank you all for voting and for submitting questions. This is such a fun year to talk about. And I think despite our favorite movie not winning, we did have a great Best Picture winner, which is always something to celebrate Mm -hmm. and something that is pretty rare. So I'm happy with it overall. I'm happy with the winner. And I think No Country for Old Men winning is maybe just an unexpected choice in a way and I think that's refreshing in looking back at the history and revisiting that movie in particular and I think it'll be fun to watch it in like 10 or 15 more years and see you know how it affects you then and we'll be talking more about the Coen brothers and more about Paul Thomas Anderson this year as Joel Cohen and PTA maybe have a showdown again with mm-hmm. the tragedy of Macbeth and Soggy Bottom slash the untitled PTA film. So I'm very excited to see both of those, obviously, and to see their place in the awards conversation next year. Yeah, and with the forced 10 nominations, yeah, I wonder if they'll have like a real shot. So next time on Oscar Wilde, we will be playing a fun game about directors. So we'll be talking about the best director category. We'll also be playing our version of a game that they played on the Big Picture podcast from The Ringer, where we will go through different decades and try to pick who we think was the best director from that decade. And the decade that the directors we placed in all depends on when their first feature came out. So it'll be a lot of fun. Definitely check out their episode if you want to find out more about the game before our episode, but it'll be a lot of fun. We're going to talk about a lot of really cool people and the evolution of the category over the years. Yeah, when their episode came out, I loved this idea. It's a bit chaotic, but like in a good way because there are just so many great names Mm -hmm. and having to pick one is so difficult, but I think it'll be fun to see where we align or not, and to revisit some amazing auteurs. Thank you so much for listening. Again, if you want to follow us on social media, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Oscar Wilde Pod. You can also submit questions to us on our website, oscarwilde.squarespace.com. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for upcoming episodes, movies, or people you'd like us to talk about, any game suggestions. We love hearing from you guys and incorporating your feedback into our episodes. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next week. I'm finished. (laughs) 